Hey everybody, welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president here at this campus, and I am joined by a full cohort of our faculty, now a full cohort of our faculty, Dr. Dr. Tommy Keene, Dr. Paul Jean, Dr. Grace Utanto, and Dr. Peter Lee, and we have a special of a special uh, event happening yep. this episode. This is the first episode we've recorded with now fully voting faculty member, our assistant professor of New Testament and pastoral theology, Dr. Paul Jean. Congratulations, Paul, now that you're Happy on Scott. the faculty. Great to have you here. Woo woo. Does it feel, does it feel different? Yeah. Mm. I mean, is that Corona around your head? Is that always there? Or did that just happen? No, it feels, it feels, um, actually, I don't know yet. Yeah, I don't know. You're figuring it out. Yeah, I'm figuring it out. Well, many of you all have been listening to Paul and he's of course been teaching, um, usually a full load, if not over a full load at RTS and has been doing a couple, multiple other jobs. Paul has that great curse of being multi-talented and multi-gifted, and so he's been involved in a lot of different um, projects we've been doing at RTS. But he's now come on as a full-time voting faculty member. And so in academic circles, that's, that's a, a big jump. That's a switch from kind of staff to, yeah, being a professor, a full voting member part, member of of the faculty it's kind of like you know it's sort of like in the church sort of joining the session in a way mm -hmm. okay you know a lot of people don't know in educational institutions you have different kinds of people working there and faculty is a unique group so it's great to have paul on he's already been kind of serving in this capacity but it's great to have him on officially paul tell me a little bit um i know our listeners have heard from you uh, if you go way back, dear listeners, to the first couple of years of this podcast during the pandemic, we focused on the research interest and some of the writing of different members of the podcast. And so you got a little bit more biographical material, but it's been a while since then. So I, it's probably a good idea for us to go ahead and reintroduce ourselves as we go through the year ahead. But I want to take this opportunity to do that with you, Paul. Can you tell us a little bit about your academic background um, as a faculty member now? What's your academic background? What are your interests? What's your area of expertise? And just uh, kind of fill us in on what you're working on these days. Well, I went to Brown University. It was good because I had attended a science math high school. And so <clears throat> I needed really just to focus a little bit more on humanities, learning how to research and write. So oh. my focus was on history and um, I took the languages there as well, studied a lot of economics. But overall, like I was just trying to prepare for like a career that required more reading and writing. And I went to Westminster Theological Seminary. Um, I didn't actually know about RTS, not uh, because in New York, the only two uh, seminary options were Gordon and uh, Westminster. Um, and Tommy and I, we were classmates. Um, I was, I had a great time there. I think um, received a very solid training in, from people like Dr. Dick Gaffin <clears throat> from Poitras and so forth. And I came to Catholic University. I was there with Scott and Peter, um, studied New Testament, focusing on linguistics and exegesis, the language. That's where um, Catholic University is a little bit more heavy. So that's my background in terms of training and over the past years. But my actually my long-term goals are more along the lines of systematics, theology, New Testament theology, and so forth. And so someone that I see as a good representative of this is Dr. Dick Gaffin, who mm -hmm. um, many people don't know. <clears throat> he actually started in New Testament. And um, he advised me when I was thinking about my PhD program. Um, he advised me to first focus on languages, on developing good exegetical skills with a redemptive historical focus and then being rooted in systematics. So he was just very formative there. Yeah. Um, and I, so I still plan to always write in New Testament. And there are certain areas I do want to address, especially as they relate to Romans and Galatians. I think those are areas that I'm interested in. But I think a lot of my interests are not just towards theology, 
But um, I think one of the unfortunate things is that like reform tradition has so much to offer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just amazing. Even like you know everything that um, Gray has been doing with bobbing neo Calvinism and so forth. But a lot of my heart is to make this material accessible to people. For, like I, when I was reading Gaffin's book, Fullness of Time, and his section on, on eschatology. If people understood it, it actually could just revolutionize the way they think about not just the Bible, but life. But I think accessibility is always a challenge. And so um, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to teach New Testament and pastoral theology because a lot of the work I want to do eventually is what I call translating. Like I want to take uh, like neo-Calvinism or things like uh, what, we're, what, what you guys talk about in biblical studies and um, help make these material more intelligible, but also very meaningful to people. Mm-hmm. So that's where my trajectory is, I think. Yeah, the, a lot of us, a lot, a lot of times around the seminary world, you hear people talk about pastor scholars, and that's true. I think RTS majors in that, bringing in scholars who have pastoral experience, or at least a pastoral heart. I mean, Paul is an exemplar of that in mm-hmm. the sense that, I mean, he's been a senior pastor. He's planted a church. He's worked at multiple levels of, of churches, and he's a senior pastor now. And that's why, as we were looking at him and his expertise, we realized he's really New Testament and pastoral theology. And so he can he can operate at that high level of New Testament scholarship, linguistic and literary interpretation, and yet can also bring that to the level of the congregation and talk about the importance of that for the preacher, right, and the pastor, the church leader, which is, of course, at the end of the day, what we're doing here at seminary. So he's been a really, you've been a really wonderful addition to that, to this team in that way. And I can remember hanging out outside the metro, I think we were in Bethesda getting coffee while we were doing our PhDs sometime between 2004 and 2007 because yeah. that's when I was doing coursework <laughs> and I remember talking about kind of our hopes and thinking about our careers and neither of us had jobs back then mm-hmm. uh, that were full time I don't think and um, kind of thinking about what we would end up doing so it's a thrill to be able to be on this faculty with you now I don't know if you remember but our first kind of running gag was the in, in this podcast was that Paul was a real pastor. No, I have to. I think I that have first running gag ran out like three weeks ago, so we're bringing yeah. it back already. I mean, it it needs it definitely needs to die. I, I mean, it, it definitely needs to die. We should not mention it, but we should as as a as the chiasm that this whole podcast oh, has become. Okay, okay. We should mention that Paul is. A real pastor. A real pastor. A bit of an inclusio of sorts. Hmm. But okay. one of the things I've been impressed with you, Paul, is like, especially in your, in your writing, it's not only in your coursework and your teaching, you know, I get to overhear the Greek class and um, Pauline epistles, which you teach, but then in your writing too, it kind of, it forms and flows out of and then back into your pastoral ministry and in, in, into your church life. Well, so I feel like I'm not exaggerating this. I feel really privileged because I often get asked like how I juggle like pastorate and seminary. But they're very synergistic. Like um, even like when I sit in on these podcasts, I learn and absorb so much. And so that it translates back into ministry in terms of freshness, right? And always getting like lots of feedback. I love what we're doing right now at the seminary. We're trying to incorporate uh, the confessions more um, mm. intentionally into our like syllabi and you know, just little things like that. They, they're very formative as I go back into ministry. But then it works the other way around because when I'm in ministry, you hear and you listen to the way people are thinking, the things that they're struggling with. And so when I come back to, you might say, the more academic setting, I come back with very specific questions as well. So I, you know, I feel very privileged to be in this uh, situation of um, like between two worlds. Mm. Great. Well, welcome on board. And um, on the topic of New Testament, and one that's of great pastoral import, <laughs> is the tough text that we're going to talk tough about text. in this tough latest. That, what a wonderful transition that was. Yeah, you like that? Okay. We're going to move on to a tough text that is really a rubric for a tough topic, as is often the case with these episodes. Yes. <laughs> Which, uh, let me start with the topic. The topic is this. We have multiple texts in the Bible 
that are what we call synoptic, right? They are seeing together, right? That's the sin with optic seeing, right? They're seeing together events, okay? You can look at Samuel versus, uh, you know, Samuel versus Chronicles, okay? Um, sections of Pentateuch that go over the same ground, okay? And retell events in, this, in a similar way. Of course, typically though, when someone says the term synoptics, they're talking about the New Testament gospels, okay? Particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we have these these three Gospels that are all kind of telling a story in similar style. And then you have John, which is telling the story of Jesus, but from uh, you know a, a unique perspective. And the question is, as we're seeing kind of these, as we're looking at these texts that are all seeing events in a similar light or the same events discussed in a different perspective, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to what extent should we try to harmonize and bring these different accounts together into one holistic account. This is not a late modern idea either. This is something that goes back to the second century. You got the Diatessaron uh, where uh, Tatian right, is trying to pull out all of the texts and sort of put together one master story, one master narrative of the life and achievements of Jesus of Nazareth, okay, by taking all these gospels and putting them together. All right, that's, that's the background to the issue. The question is, what do we do when those accounts don't seem to really perfectly line up? So the tough text that we're going to use, because, uh, and, and Tommy, you can explain why this yeah. is a specifically good tough text. The tough text we want to look at today is the text in John chapter 2, right? Mm -hmm. Tommy, what's going on in John chapter 2? Why is this important to the question of harmonization? Yeah, I think John, I mean, there's all sorts of texts that we could line up that would be there's just a lot of scholarly ink poured over them, and a lot of just student of Scripture ink poured over these texts. And uh, But John chapter 2 sticks out for me. And I think actually if you talk to people, there'll be a, there'll be a, tough, there'll be a different list of tough, tough texts, right? Yeah. Somebody, you know, you're reading through the Gospels, and you're going to hit a bump, yeah. and it's going to be this bump. You know, what, the what really happened bump, because... We have four witnesses, and you put four witnesses in a room, and you tell them to describe the same event, and you're going to expect, you should expect, uh, some differences. Mm -hmm. And in this case, uh, the, the bump is, you know, how do these various tellings kind of line up? And the problem with John 2, the reason why I think this is a good, tough text, is in both John 2 and the synoptics, you have a, a time stamp for Jesus cleansing the temple. Mm -hmm. It's very clearly the, uh, the same event. Um, one possibility is that it's not the same event, that there's two temple cleansings, uh, but that is definitely the minority report mm -hmm. in the history of thought on this, this text. It looks like uh, the same event. And in general, when I hit a, uh, an example of this in the Gospels, I have enough, you know, I, I have the, you know, we have enough literary background, we have enough information about Luke's purpose in writing versus Matthew's purpose in writing that we can kind of see, oh, this is the same event told in a different way to bring out a different set of emphases. And mm -hmm. for most of the gospel problems, that kind of solves it for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just speaking personally there, but it's like, okay, I get that. Different, different emphases. Um, with this one, they're both time-stamped. Mm -hmm. the, in, the, in the John discourse, it is precisely because of the events that take place in John chapter 2 that Jesus cleansed the temple that things get hot for, a, for his ministry in Jerusalem. His ministry in Jerusalem is time-stamped. It's dated at the beginning of his ministry. Mm -hmm. um, it comes subsequent to the wedding at Cana. There's this whole period of Jerusalem ministry that's significant in John. And then in John 4, we watch Jesus, because it's hot in Jerusalem, because it's got, there's this high pressure now in Jerusalem against him, which arises precisely because of the temple cleansing, we watch Jesus then move out of Jerusalem to Galilee. Um, and John is very specific. He, he is, um, there's one more return in Jerusalem in, in John chapter 7. And then the third return to Jerusalem at the end of, 
uh, at the end of John. So the, the temple is very clearly dated at the beginning of, of Jesus's ministry, and it's hard to move it on kind of literary grounds because, because John stamps it with, this is why he left. Mm-hmm. Uh, the synoptics, um, by contrast, all, well, the synoptics put it at the end of his ministry no. uh, in Mark, Luke, and Matthew. It's very clearly in the last week of his life Mm-hmm. It's the first thing that he does when he enters Jerusalem. The synoptics are very intent. You know, you, you, um, when the synoptics tell a life of Jesus, Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem until the last week of his life. And when he does, he cleanses the temple. This immediately escalates the intensity and sets in motion the series of events that's going to end in his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Um so it's it both are time stamped and both have this kind of important role in the narrative not just in the presentation of what Jesus did and why he did it and the meaning of all of these things but they have a very kind of narratival role and for me that's the that's the bump that's where i hit this kind of just good summary huh. yeah. yeah so how do we approach this so there there's a couple of issues right first of all question 1 is should we try to hi- harmonize this at all yeah like, is that a legitimate task as a believer, as a reader of Scripture? And the second question would be, how do we harmonize? Do we look for a consistent story behind the text? And is that possible? Is it possible for us to recover uh, the the historical account? This is kind of shifting between, you know, Richard Pratt talks about uh, the text being a mirror a portrait and a window and so we're kind of doing two things at the portrait level these are these are different works with different brush strokes and we can recognize that and, and, and read them all in their according to their own work right and then when we shift to harmonization we shift to the question of how about the window the historical reference point behind the text can we recover the history behind the text and so I think those are kind of the two good different questions should we try to harmonize and if so can we how, how can we bring a text like this together I think we can harmonize and in fact given our evangelical commitments that this is you know that scripture interprets scripture that all God's that God's word is God breathed and therefore mm-hmm. accurate in everything that it says or intends I think we at some level have to harmonize having said that I don't think it should be our first instinct I don't think the first the the first question out of the gate should not be yeah. how do I get John and the synoptics together. Rather, the first question is, you know, a more emic versus edict question. The first question is, what is the how is John portraying this this story? How does it fit in the narrative? What's significant about it? And I, I want to actually embed myself in that first order reading of John, and unless the uh, work that I'm appropriating is specifically calling out. I'm mm-hmm. doing it different than this, mm-hmm. or I'm presenting something. I'm I'm opposing this reading. Um, my hermeneutical instinct is: what is trying to be? What is in the intent here? What is being said? And to immerse myself in that first. Yeah. So I would I would bring in the harmonization question at a later stage of exegesis. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, there's this, I mean, the idea of the simulacrum, I think, is helpful. This idea that the, the author is creating a world. Now, this is not to say it's fiction, right? Because we, we, this is a reliable account, and yet the world that John right. is creating has these tensions in it that make sense as a world, right? You even talked about it. So yeah. the, the, the cleansing of the temple has happened, and therefore there's a there's heightened tension around the urban center of Jerusalem and this drives the narrative forward and and trusting in John that's part of trusting in the inerrancy of scripture right the inspiration the authority of scripture you're trusting in his simulacrum okay yeah to make sense and yet we can also say that this is it's a reliable it's a reliable representation right it's not it's not some kind of brute history which of course we can't access a thing like brute history but it, it we can't expect it to have reference, historical reference beyond the text in events that really happened, okay? And so that's that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here, I think, right? Is that our first instinct is not to create this sort of apologetic for what happened in the historical reference point behind the text, but first of all, to sit under the text and let it shape us, let it form us, let it let it push 
push our beliefs and draw us into worship. I think that's a great way of putting it. I mean, there's, we might say there's the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But who has that? Only God has that yeah. perspective on the whole. So every every, this is not to say that our knowledge of the world is not objective, but it mm-hmm. is partial. And so the best that I can appropriate is a sliver, a slice, a simulacrum of the whole. And so it's a good hermeneutical instinct to think, okay, what is the world that the text projects? Mm-hmm. And to be content with that first. And then as I get other you know, um, perspectives, other testimonies, I can compare, contrast, I can um, build from that a kind of master picture, or at least a better picture of the whole. Mm-hmm. But at, at, at each point, I have a sort of relative stance yeah. to the whole. And that's okay, and that's why it's actually in the end advantageous that we have four Gospels. Yeah. We have four distinct testimonies yeah. of what happened, and that gives me a fuller picture of the kaleidoscope here of the the. the the things that took place among us. Yeah, as an, as an aside to that, I think that's part of the, one of the wonderful things about our scripture is that we have multiple different perspectives and observations of the world that we all live in. And it gives us a much deeper, not just in the synoptics, I mean, Matthew, excuse me, yeah, Matthew to Luke, Luke to John, yeah. to Moses, to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to the author of you know, Ecclesiastes. We have all of these different people seeing and responding to the world and that gives us a richer understanding of the world that we're living in and it helps us because we're all going to be in different situations have different perspectives there are going to be times of rejoicing times of lack times of this that or the other and we have all of these different perspectives to give us this rich rounded view of the world that we see around us okay so with that said now let's let's put the other question then so because we do believe that John is a reliable reporter on events that took place. Sometime, at one point, there were people walking with Jesus and saw him cleanse a temple. When yeah, did that happen? And actually, we can be, we can be certain about that. Yeah. Um, I need to stop talking at some point. But the, the, we, all, we need other all, perspectives on this idea. Right. We need, <laughs> we need to harmonize with the Old Testament folks and the ST folks here. Um, but... One thing that we can be certain of is that Jesus cleansed the temple, that that basic narrative is correct, and we have a fourfold testimony that it happened, um, even on critical grounds, which look at which, uh, you know, there's a criteria of dissimilarity, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that there is this dissimilarity actually in the Gospels from a critical perspective raises the prob- probability that these things actually happened. It's brought up at Jesus's trial. Um, interestingly, um, the the in the synoptics we have uh, at Jesus's trial, he's accused of saying, um, "I will tear down this temple and build it up again." Mm-hmm. Um, in the synoptics, we don't get Jesus actually saying that. All we get is the cleansing of the temple, mm-hmm. and in John, we get the cleansing of the temple associated with Jesus actually saying that. So there's a kind of coherence there that arises in Jesus's trial. And then later in Acts 7, we find Stephen being accused of the same thing and being presented as if he's a kind of Christ figure in that respect. So it, it, there's so much testimony oh. that these things actually happened and that it was central to at least the Jewish component of the time, the Jewish leadership, fight, um, being jealous of and putting Jesus up for, for trial, uh, that it was... Um, we can be sure that it happened. Hmm. So when did it happen? Okay. <laughs> I feel like we're letting, you know, th- I mean, there's other problems, right? There's other synoptic issues. Um, like the Old the Old Testament has its synoptic problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're they're a little bit easier, I think, to do, I, I, uh, to work with. In some cases, uh, the interesting thing, uh, you, you, have, you have such pure specimens in the Gospels that are so good. Yeah, that's but right. But, of course, in the Old Testament, we, kn- we know it looks like the author of Chronicles has got something like a Deuteronomic history in front of him, something like Joshua through Kings. Um, he's, 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 he's citing it 
he's quoting it using large sections of it, kind of like the way it seems Matthew and Luke seem to use Mark. And yet he's also adding things, he's including things that fit for the, agenda, the theological agenda that is different, right? And it's generally understood that the author of Joshua through Kings or the editor who's compiled all those works is a totally separate argument as to why we should maybe see those as all one consistent history. He seems to be explaining either exile or how to repent and initiate restoration following 536 BC. I mean, obviously Kings ends in exile, Jehoiakim is in exile, and yet there's this, this, this glimmer of hope as Jehoiakim is lifted up to a place of, of honor in the Babylonian king's court. Okay, Chronicles is written much later. Chronicles is now in the restoration community and seems to have the agenda uh, multiple agendas, but basically this, be of good cheer, repent unto restoration. All of Israel should be a part of it. We should look for a messianic king in the line of David to reestablish all of Israel, the northern and the southern kingdoms. You know, um, the, the, these kind of more positive agenda than you find in the earlier books. As a result, Chronicles include stories, right? Like, um, you know, Hezekiah's Passover, Okay, that's not included in the uh, in, in 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 Kings, or interestingly, Chronicles leaves out the story about Bathsheba, and of course Samuel makes quite a big deal. As a matter of fact, the the story of David and and his sons is really only understandable according to Samuel Kings in light of the sin with Bathsheba, whereas Chronicles kind of just gaps that it's just sort of dropped because it's got this more positive doesn't account mention it at all. doesn't mention it at all because what's it saying that kings samuel kings is saying how did we end up here right even our ideal king was deeply flawed chronicles is saying dust yourselves off right repent unto restoration receive look for the messianic king and so the retelling of david is a much more positive story. He's, he's a positive, the Messianic king is, is unblemished in, in this account, whereas in the previous account, it's obviously blemished because he's making two different points. You know, you can imagine that too. I can even imagine, you know, when someone's going into a terrible end because of bad behavior, what are you doing? You're shouting at them, stop, stop, right? Uh, when they're coming out of a really hard situation and they're trying to kind of get back on track and recover, what are you doing? You're saying, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to draw you up. I'm going to try to bolster you. You know, it explains why you have these two different, in quotes, accounts where the author is or the narrator is selecting out different facts because he's making different points. Okay. doesn't mean that they're in contrast to each other. They're just their history doing a different theology. And right? to your point, Tommy, I, I think it's exactly the same, same type of thing. Uh, Samuel and Kings is meant to be read independent from Chronicles with its mm -hmm. own distinct message and theology. And Chronicles, which is looking at essentially uh, the same historical period, is um, has its own distinct message. Uh, so um, our immediate thought is to, I think it's just because we don't think literarily, we think history. And for that reason, when we see attention, we want to resolve that. But now that we can see it more from literary analyses, we can actually appreciate Samuel Kings as distinct as Samuel and Kings mm -hmm. and, and uh, walk away from it uh, with, um, with a pretty clear idea what it's trying to say, chronicles the same exact thing, um, and then deal with the harmonization question secondarily. I don't know about secondarily, but as a different question altogether. Yeah. And... Um, and, and work through that. So it's similar to what you were saying earlier about appreciating John and its placement of the uh, temple cleansing uh, yeah. as distinct from the other four, three Gospels yeah, and, I, and the message that that creates and what it does there is, is the same thing. I might put John a little differently, though, because I, I think the, that thing that we're doing with Chronicles and Kings and things is a little— is covers, I think, a whole lot of similar kinds of issues in the synoptics. So, uh, for example, Jesus in Luke says, blessed are the poor. Jesus in Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. How do I resolve that? What did he really say? What did the tape recorder pick up? Well, maybe he actually said both. I mean, Jesus probably preached similar sermons 
multiple times. We're not given every occasion that Jesus preached. But uh, even if it's the same event, um, I can theologically get to blessed are the poor in spirit uh, from blessed are the poor. You know, that those that, you know, I do my hermeneutics and think about how might this apply to a rich person? Well, a rich rich person might need to divest themselves of power, of authority, of, of, of riches to follow Jesus. And so I can, I can do that work and resolve that tension. Some of the tensions in the gospels are more challenging. Uh, the account of the resurrection comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, you know, who was, everybody says Mary was there first. Did she run away? Did she meet two angels? Did she meet one angel? You know, ha- what happened? Um, the way Judas dies is an issue in yeah. the gospels. Um, so I can work through literary devices and theological kinds of things, and I've got this category called narrative truncation and how we tell stories. And I can use those to kind of resolve those problems. And John 2 still sticks out to me as problematic because it's so dated. Um, it's, well, it's so you know, time-stamped. So I've been through, I don't know, Paul, what, do you have a solution here? I've been through every solution in the, in the gamut, and I've got one that I'm currently sort of uh, happy with, but do you have a, you want to sound off? Well, very curious to hear yours. I think the last I read, however, was that no one, I don't think our listeners will like this, but I think it's the honest response. No one really knows for sure. Yeah. Like how, like how to and I think that people then think, oh, it must therefore be a contradiction. But I think it was Vern Poitras in his book on gospel harmonization says that you have to start with not like the possibility of like inerrancy, but you have to believe in the inerrancy of scripture and then try to resolve those issues. But you know, just because we can't reconcile it uh, doesn't mean that therefore, hey, there must be a contradiction. Like I, I just. I don't know, like, why that is always a necessary conclusion people come to, you know, um, because there's just so much that we actually don't know. Mm-hmm. And then when you also think about uh, this one thing that John probably had more intimate knowledge of Jesus and his ministry than the other gospel writers, we shouldn't be surprised that there are differences, right? And the very fact that he does timestamp it suggests that, yeah, he also had a concern for what you and I might consider historical accuracy. So I don't think we should just jump the gun and say, hey, so there's an obvious contradiction here. But I think the last I read in scholarship is no one's sure yet how to reconcile all of this. Right. And, I, and that's really important. I don't have to prove a I, – I don't have to harmonize to prove that inerrancy is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that it, and then it's okay to say I don't know. Um, and that is not – to diminish the importance of Scripture's authority. I do think it's also, you know, can be helpful, um, fun <laughs> sometimes, um, but also ap- of apologetic value and even of, hermen- of, of interpretive value to kind of puzzle through it. Um, I had previ- at a previous stage, I, I was convinced that John was telling these things, putting it at the beginning for literary reasons, for, for storytelling reasons, just sim- simplifies. Um, I briefly flirted with the two cleansings view. Um, and now, uh, alongside of this kind of rise in appreciation and scholarship for the historicity of John, I'm, I've become more persuaded that John has, is putting it where it, where it actually happened and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it where they have it for literary reasons. Again, John, it's just highly time-stamped, and the exit from Jerusalem almost requires it, and it really fits. It makes a lot of sense to me, and it actually explains something that the synoptics don't really get into. Why does Jesus do ministry, his, the bulk of his ministry in Galilee? We're, we're yeah. never really <clears throat> told why Jesus did it that way, in the synoptics, well, maybe John gives us why. Because it was hot in Jerusalem, it, the time was not yet ripe for him to reveal himself as uh, in fullness as the Messiah. And so he does ministry in Galilee for that, for that reason. Well, then how do we explain the timestamp um, in the synoptics? 
Well, pretty much everyone thinks Mark is first, and Mark, uh, where the where the cleansing occurs in Mark, actually is it, it, it is time stamped, but it's very also clearly there for literary reasons. It's the the cleansing of the temple is bundled with the uh, you know it's Mark like sandwiches, um, and we have the fig tree. Uh, Jesus curses the fig tree, then he cleanses the temple, and then he explains to the disciples the cursing of the fig tree. So there's, there's very clearly Mark has a, a literary purpose um, in putting the cleansing where, it's, um, where it is. And I don't, I don't find it problematic to think, okay, he's, he's put it there, and as Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, clearly claiming to be a Mas- the Messiah, clearly claiming the authority of the Son of Man, um, that there's this living memory recalls to mind what Jesus did last time he was there, mm. which was cleanse the temple. So uh, uh, narrative truncation, sim- simplify the storytelling. This is very much in everybody's mind that mm-hmm. Jesus has cleansed the temple, and now he's entering Jerusalem as its as its king, lift up you heads, O you mighty gates, and he's doing that self-consciously, visibly, and publicly, and the conversation at that point becomes essentially what John tells us, on what authority do you do these things? Mm-hmm. And his oh, answer is, on the Father's authority. So the, the first thing that comes to mind as he re-enters Jerusalem is the thing that he did uh, mm-hmm. most memorably the last time he was in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So the cleansing of the temple for you was uh, if we think historically uh, John's gospel is more accurate historically and the synoptics are recalling dischronologizing right or, yeah. thank you that's that's exactly yeah, right they are dischronologizing for the, for the sake of bringing the Jerusalem ministry together in a cohesive coherent mm-hmm. narrative frame that we have that temple cleansing brought forward it's a, it's an it's the idea I'm currently, yeah, f- feel most settled about, and That's don't really feel like there's that a is, kind of narrative. It does explain problem. the you know the uh, I forget one of the gospels also consi- coincides his move to Galilee with the beheading of John the Baptist, so there's hostility there. Mm-hmm. Thus, he sees that as a sign now to not abandon Jerusalem, but now was not the time for Jerusalem, yeah, right, and thus right. go to go to Galilee, and right. now thus that is now the the you know the the kingdom of God is at hand type of mm-hmm. message that he's preaching mm-hmm. now. And also, it, it, I like that because when you look at John two, um, he says, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up." And it says, "When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had yeah. said these things." Now, if this had happened at the end of the ministry, when it he was raised from the dead, is in a couple of days, so it's yeah. not yeah. like a major remembrance. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and there does seem you know, to be this memory yeah. that's recorded in the synoptics that he said precisely that, yep. and yet he doesn't say it in the synoptics. Yeah, interesting. And they and, and, and so they're not remembering something that happened three days before. They're right. remembering four days before. They're remembering something that happened maybe years before. That's really interesting. I think those are that. That's the exact kind of way that we ought to think about these things, right? You look for the clues in the text. Um, to try to figure out, okay, so what's 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 being suggested here, as opposed to just reading it and assuming a contradiction? What is the text actually saying? What's available to us? So, mm-hmm. like you talked about, the tools that are available to us in terms of how literature, how we know literature worked back then, and how it works now, right? That you can move things around doesn't have to be in chronological sequence. I mean, the thing that's always struck me about it, I'll say, kind of going back to the the old school view that. Um, John may have dischronologized is that leading up to the John story we have these events this is what I've always thought but I'm I'm, I'm intrigued by your explanation of it leading up to you have these uh, story and then and then after this he did this and then story and then after this he did this and then story and then after this he did this and then we get to the cleansing of the temple and there's no and after this Mm -hmm. right so he's in Capernaum and then suddenly you have verse 13 the Passover of the Jews was at hand you know you don't you don't get this and right. after this then. so it kind of and then you have a series of dis not not non-sequential i'm now i know i'm applying hebrew linguistics to greek okay but um you don't get an and then you then get uh 
you know, um, in verse 23, another, now when he was in Jerusalem, and then you get the Nicodemus story, now there was a man, so these are kind of like dis, they're, they're, uns, they're non-sequential. It's these um, sort of off the main event line, mm-hmm. right? And then what happens? We get to the end of Nebuchadnezzar. We have a series of sayings with Nicodemus, then verse 22. Um, after this, Jesus and his disciples went. So you get yeah. this kind of like, you know, it seems like there's a break. And I've always thought, is, is, is John breaking? Now, there's two ways to explain that. He could be saying, after this, they go to Capernaum. Event, 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 event that kind of happens in this timeline, okay? But right. not necessarily one after the other. These are kind of yeah. non, non-sequential. Yeah. And then back onto the timeline again after this, after this, after this. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's definitely possible, too. And I think that was my view. Yeah. Um, that was the old naive. No, I'm not. That's that not. You've that's, had, but you've matured. That's past the that outdated. One. Uh, <laughs> when you've matured, you'll. No, I. And then in favor of the. Two I like. Cleansing, I like the way that you're doing. I, I like your explanation of it, though. I think it's really fascinating. Thank you. To to Very kind go to the because usually there's this kind of John's more theological. He's not so concerned yeah. with history. The synoptics are like the hard hitting history, and this is kind of saying, oh, wait a minute, that may not be the case. In favor of the two cleansing view. Um, they're clearly both John and the synoptics. The question in orbit is, on what authority do you do these things? And there's this interesting thing that arises from the two cleansing view is that he does it early in his ministry, right? And he doesn't, he, he has the authority because it's from his father, but he doesn't have street cred. He doesn't have. Yeah, he's not as well known. He's not as well known. He doesn't have the influence. He does it again at the end of his ministry. And now he has the populace behind him. He, the, you know, the, this crew has just said, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And mm-hmm. he has not only the authority of his father, but also he has a, a flock of sheep. You know. And maybe he says in the earlier event, he says, I'll rebuild the temple in three days. Yeah. In the latter event, he doesn't need to anymore. He's, going, right. he's on his way to the cross. Right. It's happening. It's going to happen in front of them. That's fascinating. It is. I mean, to the point you said, not many. That's definitely the minority view. It's the minority view, I assume because it's creating entities to explain these two texts. Yeah. It's not the minority view necessarily because there's something in the text that says this can't be the case. Right? Yeah, right. It's not because it can't be the case. It certainly can be the case. One question that people have about that view is, okay, well, then why do none of the writers do that? It yeah. seems like the easiest way to make that point is for John or the synoptics to Just do to it at twice. both yeah. ends. I'm curious, though, our systematician, our only voting systematician in the room. And epistemologist. And epistemologist and teacher of the uh, scripture class. If, if, if anything causes any, anything we've said so far, and, harmonization causes any and scriptural inerrancy and fallibility issues. Quite, and quite, quite, a, quite a nuanced and sophisticated discursive critic of other simulacra, like <laughs> the Marvel Universe. And, <laughs> I, I I want the hard hitting hot takes from Gra- Gracie Tonto. I don't know what to say specifically about the Marvel universe, but um, <laughs> this is all very much in line with um, Bovings and Kuiper's view of the divine inspiration of Scripture. They would argue that when we consider terms like infallible, where we say that the Scripture cannot err, right? If inerrancy says that Scripture does not err, infallibility is a stronger claim, which says that Scripture cannot err because it is the Word of God. Um, we have to include in that understanding of infallibility the organic inspiration of scripture which means that again scripture uses human language human authors their own context styles and even their own purposes therefore to communicate divine revelation so we dare not reduce the scripture into a modern scientific historical textbook right because that's not the context in which god chooses to reveal himself so Kuiper and Bobbing oftentimes would say, you know, when, when we talk about infallibility, uh, this includes understanding the scriptures in that original context, which means that the authors oftentimes depict things in their own perspectives and their mm-hmm. own purposes, and therefore it's more like a painting than it is like a photograph. Mm-hmm. It's more like um, um, a phenomenological description of what happened for theological purposes rather than a historical dictation of exactly what happened as you would have in a law court. So God oftentimes preserves the very sense that he's trying to communicate in different words, for instance. So we have poor in spirit or poor, 
blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, for instance. And because it's the same spirit that is inspiring all these different authors, even though they don't say it in exactly the same words or exactly the same way, the same senses are being communicated. Mm -hmm. Namely, that this Jesus really is the Son of Man, and he has the authority to do this, and he is the true temple, let's say, right? So um, it's very much consistent with what they said. And, and part of the organic idea, and we try to tease this out in the Neo-Calvinism book too, is that you have to make a distinction between a, the center of an organism versus the periphery of an organism. So just as in, in the human body, the heart is more central to who you are than let's say the hair on your head, but the hair is still very part of you as much as the, the heart is a part of you. So it is in Holy Scripture, some passages like John 3.16 is more central to Holy Scripture yeah. than let's say a, a random passage from, um, I, I dare not say the book of Leviticus because it is. Oh, I thought you were going to pick a minor prophet. <laughs> or a minor prophet, right? Uh, some, some off the cuff sort of comment somewhere, you know. <sighs> Um, let's just say, right? Um, uh, so what what Kyber and Bavik are, are trying to say with that distinction between center and periphery is that scripture is clear on the center and yeah. it's very authoritative with regard to those aspects that are immediately accessible, understandable, and communicates the gospel and, and thinks about God very clearly. But when it comes to the periphery, they're still authoritative, they're still infallible, but when there are questions about the periphery, you don't have to also adjudicate on the center. Mm. You can suspend judgments yeah. on the periphery while still at the same time affirming the central core of Christianity yeah. in the scriptures, which is about the death, resurrection, and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the triune God and so on. So it doesn't mean, or let the reader understand, that they say that the central is inerrant and the periphery are errant. No, all of it is inerrant, all of it is infallible, but it's about the human reception of the text. And questions about the periphery cannot negate the authority and the clarity of the centrum. That's great. Mm. Two plugs, since we're on the topic. Yeah. Uh, Ray Dillard's article, uh, Harmonization, a Help and a Hindrance, was very influential to me here. A helpful kind of guide uh, hermeneutically. And then Paul mentioned uh, Dick Gaffin, our fellow mentor, and he's been a friend of the show uh, he's got a new book out, Word and Spirit, and he a uh, series of articles, a uh, collection yeah. of uh, articles that he's published over the years, a wonderful tome, and many of which uh, deal with precisely these issues, the authority of Scripture, hermeneutics, how to interpret it, historical referentiality, all that kind of stuff. No. Mm, that's good. I am curious, Tommy, uh, for both of you guys, I guess, uh, you had mentioned early on how the placement of this kind of affects the message of John distinctly from the gospel, uh, from the synoptics. So uh, what what effect would you say that has in terms, is it, you know, since the way that John puts it, he's anticipating resurrection, is the resurrection perhaps more kind of the goal as you're reading John, which is more implicit in 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 the synoptics? Yeah, I, I don't know if, this is the interesting thing, I think theologically, I come out at the same spot, maybe a different emphasis, but the synoptics, what the synoptics give me is a more efficient telling of the narrative. They, they, they pull that forward, and you do, I think that's a very natural storytelling kind of dynamic. A lot went on between, you know, when I picked up the groceries this morning and when I um, started making dinner uh, this evening. And yet I might present those as one cohesive story and no one's going to be like, well, you're, you know, leaving things out. you're leaving things out. You didn't tell, you know, I, I can, I can tell the story in that way and it is more, it's more efficient. Um, I think John is interested in telling a different kind of, a different kind of story. He's maybe explaining things that aren't exactly explained in yeah. the synoptics and as a result there's that of that different emphasis and um yeah he wants i think he wants to put 14 you know john 14 and the the farewell discourse you know this huge chunk at the end and he doesn't want anything to interrupt that i think he's got all of these things going on uh there and as a result um he puts it in a different spot but i don't think we come out theologically any different right it's a good reminder. I mean, as Paul said, just because we may not know the answer doesn't mean there's not an answer. Right. 
And secondly, as, as you know, Tommy, I think you mentioned early on too, um, I have to remind our students of this. It's great to read the Bible with an apologetic eye, right? We are, we are expected to provide a defense of those things which we believe. And yet also don't forget, and as a matter of fact, keep it a matter of first order, Tommy, to use your, your language, that when we're reading the scripture, we are coming before the throne of the king. And you can't, it's unhealthy for you to always be walking in with an apologetic mindset about these things. So it's perfectly authorized to read the scripture that way. And yet make sure your stance isn't always one of you know, sort of trust but verify or something. This is the word of God. And we come to it, we sit under it, we let it form us. We don't go in and try to form it. Yeah. Just a different emphasis. Yep. Well, that's great. Well, this has been a great conversation. I always learn a whole lot with this faculty, and that's why I think these recording these podcasts, we, we would probably need to do these even if we weren't posting these online because mm-hmm. I just like getting together and talking about these issues with every one of you. So thanks for being with us. I hope this was a benefit to you at home. If you're interested in conversations like this and you'd like to have more of them, let me tell you, I know a place you can hang out, and that's Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. So if you'd like to start taking classes with us, we'd love to have that conversation with you. Just go to rts.edu forward slash Washington. And if you'd like to support the work of this seminary and the work that we're doing, both providing podcasts free of charge and evening lectures and classes and ultimately at the end of the day training up the next generation of pastors we'd love to receive your aid in that way and partner with you so if you'd like to give to rts washington you can go to the url www.give to the number two rtsdc.com give to rtsdc.com and just mark washington dc as the recipient of your gift and we'd love to have your support Thanks again for being with us this week. We look forward to uh, our next conversation next week. Until then, take care. Your, your van is the ship of Theseus. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Will it still be the same? Yeah, van? it's not the same yeah. van. It started. That's a good call. Good, good pull. This van issues is your house issues. That no, hurt. just that hurt a little. Bit. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just saying that you know, we were those who we. Those faces. That's too, too, that's that's too soon. That's too soon. <laughs> I was just trying to be in. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to encourage weeping with oh, those who weep. Thank you.